The King of Schnorrers by Israel Zangwill, read by Adrian Pretzelis. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The King of Schnorrers by Israel Zangwill, Chapter Five, showing how the king dissolved the Mahamad. Manasseh de Costa, thus docked of his nominal plenitude in the solemn writ, had been summoned before the Mahamad, the intended union of his daughter with a Polish Jew having excited the liveliest horror and displeasure in the breasts of the elders of the synagogue. Such a Jew did not pronounce Hebrew as they did. The Mahamad was a council of five, no less dread than the more notorious Council of Ten. Like the Venetian Tribunal, which has unjustly monopolized the attention of history, it was of annual election, and it was elected by a larger body of elders, just as the Council of Ten was chosen by the aristocracy. The gentlemen of the Mahamad, as they were styled, administered the affairs of the Spanish-Portuguese community, and their oligarchy would undoubtedly be a byword for all that is arbitrary and inquisitorial, but for the widespread ignorance of its existence. To itself the Mahamad was the centre of creation. On one occasion it refused to bow even to the authority of the Lord Mayor of London. A Sephardic Jew lived and moved and had his being by permission of the Mahamad. Without its consent he could have no legitimate place in the scheme of things. Minus the permission of the Mahamad, he could not marry. With it he could be divorced readily. He might, indeed, die without the sanction of the Council of Five, but this was the only great act of his life that was free from its surveillance, and he could certainly not be buried, save by permission of the Mahamad. The Hayham himself, the sage or chief rabbi of the congregation, could not unite his flock in holy wedlock without the permission of the Mahamad. And this authority was not merely negative and passive, it was likewise positive and active. To be a Yahid, a recognized congregant, one had to submit one's neck to a yoke more galling even than that of the Torah, to say nothing of the payment of the finta or poll tax. Woe to him who refused to be a warden of the captives, he who ransomed the chained hostages of the Moorish corsairs or the war prisoners held in durance by the Turks or to be president of the congregation, or parnas of the holy land, or bridegroom of the law, or any of the numerous dignitaries of a complex constitution. Fines, frequent and heavy, for the benefit of the poor box, awaited him by permission of the Mahamad. Unhappy the white who misconducted himself in synagogue by offending the president or grossly insulting any other person, as the ordinance deliciously ran. Penalties stringent and harrying visited these and other offences. Deprivation of the mitzvot, of swathing the holy scroll, or opening the ark, 
ignominious relegation to seats behind the reading-desk, withdrawal of the franchise prohibition against shaving for a term of weeks, and, if accepting office, the Yahid failed in the punctual and regular discharge of his duties, he was mulcted and chastised none the less. A fine of forty pounds drove from the synagogue Isaac Disraeli, collector of curiosities of literature, and made possible that curiosity of politics, the career of Lord Beaconsfield. The fathers of the synagogue, who drew up their constitution in pure Castilian in the days when Pepys noted the indecorum in their little synagogue in King Street, meant their statutes to cement, thus to disintegrate the community. "'Twas a tactless tyranny, this of the Mahamad, an inelastic administration of a cast-iron codex wrought in good King Charles's golden days, when the colony of Dutch-Spanish exiles was as a camp in enemy's country, in need of military regime, and it cooperated with the attractions of an unhampered Christian career in driving out many a brilliant family beyond the gates of the ghetto and into the pages of Debrett. Athens is always a dangerous rival to Sparta. But the Mahamad itself moved strictly in the grooves of prescription. That legalistic instinct of the Hebrew, which had evolved into the most gigantic and minute code of conduct in the world, had beguiled these latter-day Jews into super-adding to it a local legislation that grew into two hundred pages of Portuguese, an intertangled network of ascamote, or regulations, providing for every contingency of synagogue politics, from the quarrels of members for the best seats, down to the dimensions of their graves, in the carriera, from the distribution of mitzvot among the rich, to the distribution of Passover cakes among the poor. If the wheels and pulleys of the communal life moved by permission of the Mahamad, the Mahamad moved by permission of the Askamot. The solemn council was met in complete Mahamad. Even the chief of the elders was present, by virtue of his privilege making a sixth. Not to count the chancellor or secretary who sat flutteringly fingering the Portuguese minute-book on the right of the president. He was a little man, an odd medley of pomp and bluster, with a snuff-smeared upper lip and a nose that had dipped in the wine when it was red. He had a grandiose sense of his own importance, but it was a pride that had its roots in humility, for he felt himself great because he was the servant of greatness. He lived by permission of the Mahamad. As an official he was theoretically inaccessible. If you approached him on a matter he would put out his palms depreciatingly and pant, I must consult the Mahamad. It was said of him that he had once been asked the time, and that he had automatically panted, I must consult the Mahamad. This consultation was the merest form. In practice the secretary had more influence than the chief rabbi, who was not allowed to recommend an applicant for charity, for the quaint reason that the respect entitled for him might unduly prejudice the council in favour of his candidate. 
as no gentleman of the Mahamad could possibly master the statutes in his year of office, especially as only a rare member understood the Portuguese in which they had been ultimately couched, the secretary was invariably referred to, for he was permanent, full of saws and precepts, and so he interpreted the law with impartial inaccuracy, uh, by permission of the Mahamad. In his heart of hearts he believed that the sun rose and the rain fell, by permission of the Mahamad. The council chamber was of goodly proportions, and was decorated by gold-lettered panels inscribed with the names of pious donors, thick as saints in a graveyard, overflowing even into the lobby. The flower and chivalry of the Spanish Jewry sat around that council table, grandees who had plumed and ruffled it with the bloods of their days, clanking their swords with the best, punctilious with all, and ceremonious, with the stately Castilian courtesy still presented by the men who were met this afternoon, to whom their memory was as faint as the receding records of the panels. These descendants of theirs had still elaborate salutations and circumlocutions, and austere dignities of debate. God-fearing men of capacity and respectability, as the Ascama demanded, they were also men of money, and it gave them a port and a repose. His Britannic Majesty graced the throne no better than the President of the Mahamad, seated at the head of the long table in his alcoved armchair, with the Chief of the Elders on his left, and the Chancellor on his right, and his councillors all about him. The westering sun sent a pencil of golden light through the Norman windows, as if anxious to record the names of those present in gilt letters, uh, by permission of the Mahamad. "'Let de Costa enter,' said the President, when the agenda demanded the great Schnorrer's presence. The Chancellor fluttered to his feet, fussily threw open the door, and beckoned vacantly with his finger till he discovered Manasseh was not in the lobby. The beadle came hurrying up instead. "'Where is da Costa?' panted the Chancellor. "'Call da Costa!' "'Da Costa!' sonorously intoned the beadle with the long-drawn accent of court ushers. The corridor rang hollow, empty of Manasseh. "'Why?' "'He was here a minute ago!' cried the bewildered beadle. He ran down the passage, and found him sure enough at the end of it, where it abutted on the street. The King of Schnorrers was in dignified converse with a person of consideration. "'Da Costa!' the beadle cried again, but his tone was less awesome and more tetchy. The beggar did not turn his head. "'Mr. Da Costa!' said the beadle, now arrived too near the imposing figure to venture on familiarities with it. This time the beggar gave indication of restored hearing. "'Yes, my man,' he said, turning and advancing a few paces to meet the envoy. "'Don't go, Grobstock,' he called over his shoulder. "'Didn't you hear me calling?' grumbled the beadle. I heard you calling da Costa, but I naturally imagined it was one of your drinking companions," replied Manasseh severely. 
"'The Mahamad is waiting for you,' faltered the beadle. "'Tell the gentleman of the Mahamad,' said Manasseh, with reproving emphasis, "'that I shall do myself the pleasure of being with them presently. "'Nay, pray don't hurry away, my dear Grobstock,' he went on, resuming his place at the German magnate's side. "'And so your wife is taking the waters at Tunbridge Wells. "'In faith, tis an excellent regimen for the vapours. "'I'm thinking of sending my wife to Buxton. "'The warden of our hospital has his country seat there.' "'But you are wanted,' murmured Grobstock, who was anxious to escape. "'He had caught the Schnorrer's eye as its owner sunned himself in the archway, "'and it held him.' "'Tis only a meeting of the Mahamad I have to attend,' he said, indifferently. "'Rather a nuisance, but duty is duty.' Grobstock's red face became a setting for two expanded eyes. "'I thought the Mahamad was your chief counsel,' he exclaimed. "'Yes, there are only five of us.' said Manasseh lightly, and while Grubstop gaped incredulous, the Chancellor himself shambled up in pale consternation. "'You are keeping the gentleman of the Mahamad waiting!' he panted imperiously. "'Oh, you are right, Grubstock,' said Manasseh, with a sigh of resignation. "'They cannot get on without me. Well, you will excuse me, I know.' "'I'm glad to have seen you again. We shall finish our chat at your house some evening, shall we? I have agreeable recollections of your hospitality.' "'My uh, wife will be away all this month,' Grobstock repeated feebly. "'Ha-ha-ha!' laughed Manasseh roguishly. "'Thank you for the reminder. I shall not fail to aid you in taking advantage of her absence.' "'Perhaps mine will be away, too, at Buxton. Two bachelors! Ha-ha!' And, proffering his hand, he shook Grobstock's ingracious farewell. Then he sauntered leisurely in the wake of the feverishly impatient Chancellor, his staff tapping the stones in measured tardiness. "'Good afternoon, gentlemen,' he observed affably as he entered the council chamber. "'You have kept us waiting,' sharply rejoined the President of the Mahamad, ruffled out of his regal suavity. He was a puffy, swarthy personage, elegantly attired, and he leaned forward on his velvet throne, tattooing on the table with bediamonded fingers. "'Not so long as you have kept me waiting,' said Manasseh, with quiet resentment. If I had known you expected me to cool my heels in the corridor, I should not have come, and had not my friend the treasure of the great synagogue opportunely turned up to chat with me, I should not have stayed. "'You are impertinent, sir,' growled the President. "'I think, sir, it is you who owe me an apology,' maintained Manasseh unflinchingly and knowing the courtesy and high breeding which has always distinguished your noble family, I can only explain your present tone by your being unaware I have a grievance. No doubt it is your Chancellor who cited me to appear at too early an hour." The President, cooled by the quiet dignity of the beggar, 
turned a questioning glance upon the outraged Chancellor, who was crimson and quivering with confusion and indignation. "'It is usual to summon persons before the commencement of the meeting,' he stammered hotly. "'We cannot tell how long the prior business will take.' "'Then I would respectfully submit to the chief of the elders,' said Manasseh that at the next meeting of his august body he move a resolution that persons cited to appear before the Mahamad shall take precedence of all other business. The chief of the elders looked helplessly at the president of the Mahamad, who was equally at sea. However, I will not press that point now, added Manasseh nor will I draw the attention of the committee to the careless, perfunctory manner in which the document summoning me here was drawn up, so that, had I been a stickler for accuracy, I need not have answered to the name of Manasseh da Costa. "'But that is your name,' protested the Chancellor. "'If you will examine the charity list,' said Manasseh magnificently, you will see that my name is Manasseh Bueno Barzillai Azevedo da Costa. But you are keeping the gentleman of the Mahamad waiting. And with a magnanimous air of dismissing the past, he seated himself on the nearest empty chair at the foot of the table, leaned his elbows on the table and his face on his hands, and gazed across at the President immediately opposite. The councillors were so taken aback by his unexpected bearing that this additional audacity was scarcely noted. But the Chancellor, wounded in his inmost instincts, exclaimed irately, "'Stand up, sir! These chairs are for the gentlemen of the Mahamad!' "'And being gentlemen,' added Manasseh crushingly, "'they know better than to keep an old man on his legs any longer.' "'If you were a gentleman,' retorted the Chancellor, "'you would take that thing off your head.' "'If you were not an Amhaaretz, rejoined the beggar, "'you would know that it is not a mark of disrespect for the Mahamad, "'but of respect for the law, which is higher than the Mahamad. "'The rich man can afford to neglect our holy relics, "'but the poor man has only the law.' It is his sole luxury. The pathetic tremor in his voice stirred a confused sense of wrongdoing and injustice in the councillors' breasts. The President felt vaguely that the edge of his incoming impressive rebuke had been turned, if, indeed, he did not sit rebuked instead. Irritated, he turned on the Chancellor and bade him hold his peace. "'He means well.' Manasseh said depreciatingly. He cannot be expected to have the fine instincts of the gentleman of the Mahamad. May I ask you, sir, he concluded, to proceed with the business for which you have summoned me? I have several appointments to keep with clients. The President's bediamonded fingers recommenced their ill-tempered tattoo. He was fuming inwardly with a sense of baffled wrath, of righteous indignation made unrighteous. "'Is it true, sir?' 
He burst forth at last in the most terrible accents he could command in the circumstances. "'That you mediate giving your daughter in marriage to a Polish Jew?' "'No,' replied Manasseh curtly. "'No?' articulated the President, while a murmur of astonishment went round the table at this unexpected collapse of the whole case. "'Why, your daughter admitted it to my wife!' said the counsellor on Manasseh's right. Manasseh turned to him, expostulant, tilting his chair and body towards him. "'My daughter is going to marry a Polish Jew,' he exclaimed with argumentative forefinger. "'But I do not meditate giving her to him.' "'Ah, then you will refuse your consent,' said the counsellor, hitching his chair back as to escape the beggar's progressive propinquity. "'By no means,' quoth Manasseh, in surprised accents, as he drew his chair nearer again. "'I have already consented. I do not meditate consenting. That word argues an inconclusive attribute.' "'None of your quibbles, sirrah!' cried the President, while a scarlet flush mantled on his dark countenance. Do you not know that the union you contemplate is disgraceful and degrading to you, to your daughter, to the community which has done so much for your what? A Sephardi? Marry a Tedesco? Shameful! And do you think I do not feel the shame as deeply as you? inquired Manasseh with infinite pathos. Do you think, gentlemen, that I have not suffered from this passion of a Tedesco for my daughter? I came here expecting your sympathy, and do you offer me reproach? Perhaps you think, sir—and here he turned again to his right-hand neighbour, who, in his anxiety to evade his pernicious proximity, had half-wheeled his chair round, offering only his back to the argumentative forefinger. "'Perhaps you think, because I have consented, that I cannot condole with you, that I am not at one with you in lamenting this blot on our common scutcheon. Perhaps you think—and here he adroitly twisted his chair into argumentative position on the other side of the counsellor, rounding him like a cape, that because you have no sympathy with my tribulation, I have no sympathy with yours. But if I have consented, it is only because it was the best I could do for my daughter. In my heart of hearts, I have repudiated her, so that she may practically be considered an orphan, and as such, a fit person to receive the marriage dowry bequeathed by Rodriguez Real. Peace be upon him. This is no laughing matter, sir, thundered the President, stung into forgetfulness of his dignity by thinking too much of it. No, indeed, said Manasseh sympathetically, wheeling to the right so as to confront the President, who went on stormily. "'Are you aware, sir, of the penalties you risk by persisting in your course?' "'I risk no penalties,' replied the beggar. "'Indeed! Then do you think any one may trample with impunity 
all upon our ancient Eskimote. Our ancient Eskimote? repeated Manasseh in surprise. What have they to say against a Sephardi marrying a Tedesco? The audacity of the question rendered the council breathless. Manasseh had to answer it himself. They have nothing to say. There is no such Askama. There was a moment of awful silence. It was as though he had disavowed the Decalogue. "'Do you question the first principle of our Constitution?' said the President at last, in low, ominous tones. "'Do you deny that your daughter is a traitress? Do you—' "'Ask your Chancellor,' calmly interrupted Manasseh. "'He is an Amha'aretz, but he should know your statutes, and he will tell you that my daughter's conduct is nowhere forbidden.' "'Silence, sir!' cried the President testily. "'Mr. Chancellor, read the Askama!' The Chancellor wriggled on his chair, his face flushing and palping by turns. All eyes were bent upon him in anxious suspense. He hemmed and hard and coughed and took snuff and blew his nose elaborately. "'Ah, uh, there is no, no express Askama!' he stuttered at last. Manasseh sat still in unpretentious triumph. The councillor, who was now become his right-hand neighbour, was the first to break the dazed silence, and it was his first intervention. "'Of course, it was never actually put into writing,' he said in stern reproof. "'It has never been legislated against, because it has never been conceived possible.' These things are an instinct with every right-minded Sephardi. Have we ever legislated against marrying Christians?" Manasseh veered round half a point of the compass, and fixed the new opponent with his argumentative forefinger. "'Certainly we have,' he replied unexpectedly, in section twenty, paragraph two. He quoted the Askamar by heart rolling out the sonorous Portuguese like a solemn indictment. "'If our legislators had intended to prohibit intermarriage with the German community, they would have prohibited it.' "'There is the traditional law as well as the written,' said the Chancellor, recovering himself. Uh, "'It is so in our holy religion. It is so in our constitution.' "'Yes, there are precedents assuredly.' cried the President, eagerly. "'There is the case uh, of one of our treasurers in the time of George the Second, said the little Chancellor, blossoming under the sunshine of the President's encouragement, and naming the ancestor of a Duchess of today. "'He wanted to marry a beautiful German Jewess.' "'And was indicted,' said the President. "'Ahem!' coughed the Chancellor. He was only permitted to marry her under humiliating conditions. Uh, the elders forbade the attendance of the uh, members of the House of Judgment or of the Cantors. Uh, no celebration was to take place in the Snoga. Uh, no offerings were to be made for the bridegroom's health, nor was he even to receive the bridegroom's call to the reading of the law. But the elders will not impose any such conditions on my son-in-law," 
said Manasseh, skirting round another chair so as to bring his forefinger to play upon the chief of the elders, on whose left he had now arrived in his argumentative advances. "'In the first place he is not one of us. His desire to join us is a compliment. If any one has offended your traditions, it is my daughter. But then she is not a male, like the treasurer cited.' She is not an active agent. She has not gone out of her way to choose a Tedesco. She has been chosen. Your masculine precedents cannot touch her. "'Aye, but we can touch you,' said the contemporary treasurer, guffawing grimly. He sat opposite Manasseh and next to the Chancellor. "'Is it fines you are thinking of?' said Manasseh, with a scornful glance across the table. "'Very well, find me, if you can afford it. You know that I am a student, a son of the law, who has no resources but what you allow him. If you care to pay this fine, it is your affair. There is always room in the poor-box. I am always glad to hear of fines. You had better make up your mind to the inevitable, gentlemen. Have I not had to do it?' There is no Askamar to prevent my son-in-law having all the usual privileges. In fact, it was to ask that he might receive the bridegroom's call to the law on the Sabbath before his marriage that I really came. By section 3, paragraph 1, you are empowered to admit any person about to marry the daughter of a Yahid. Again the sonorous Portuguese ran out thrilling the councillors with all that quintessential awfulness of ancient statutes in a tongue not understood. It was not till a quarter of a century later that the Askamot were translated into English, and from that moment their authority was doomed. The Chancellor was the first to recover from the quotation. Daily contact with these archaic sanctities had dulled his awe and the President's impotent irritation spurred him to action. "'But you are not a Yahid,' he said quietly. "'By paragraph five of the same section, anyone whose name appears on the R charity list ceases to be a Yahid.' "'And a vastly proper law,' said Manasseh, with irony. "'Everybody may vote but the Schnorrer.' and ignoring the Chancellor's point at great length, he remarked confidentially to the Chief of the Elders, at whose elbow he was still encamped, "'It is curious how few of your Elders perceive that those who take the charity are the pillars of the synagogue. What keeps your community together? Fines. What ensures respect for your constitution? Fines. What makes every man do his duty?' Fines! What rules this very Mahamad? Fines! And it is the poor who provide an outlet for all these monies. Egad, do you think your members would for a moment tolerate your penalties if they did not know the money was laid out in mitzvot? Charity is the salt of riches, says the Talmud, and indeed it is the salt that preserves your community. "'Have done, sir! Have done!' 
shouted the President, losing all regard for those grave amenities of the ancient council chamber which Manasseh did his best to maintain. "'Do you forget to whom you are talking?' "'I am talking to the chief of the elders,' said Manasseh in a wounded tone. "'But if you would like me to address myself to you—' And, wheeling round the chief of the elders, he landed his chair next to the President's. "'Silence, fellow!' thundered the President, shrinking spasmodically from his confidential contact. "'You have no right to a voice at all, as the Chancellor has reminded us. You are not even a Yahid, a congregant.' "'Then the laws do not apply to me,' retorted the beggar quietly. "'It is only the Yahid who is privileged to do this, who is prohibited from doing that.' No Askamar mentions the Schnorrer, or gives you any authority over him. On the contrary, said the Chancellor, seeing the President disconcerted again. He is bound to attend the uh, weekday services, uh, but this man hardly ever does, sir. I never do, corrected Manasseh, with touching sadness. That is another of the privileges I have to forego in order to take your charity. I cannot risk appearing to my Maker in the light of a mercenary. And what prevents you taking your turn in the graveyard watches? sneered the Chancellor. The antagonists were now close together, one on either side of the President of the Mahamad, who was wedged between the two bubbling, quarrelling figures his complexion altering momently for the blacker, and his fingers working nervously. "'What prevents me?' replied Manasseh. "'My age! It would be a sin against heaven to spend a night in the cemetery. If the body-snatchers did come, they might find a corpse to their hand in the watch-tower. But I do my duty. I always pay a substitute.' "'No doubt,' said the treasurer. "'I remember your asking me for the money to keep an old man out of the cemetery. Now I see what you meant.' "'Yes,' began two others. "'And I—' "'Order, gentlemen, order,' interrupted the President desperately. For the afternoon was flitting, the sun was setting, and the shadows of twilight were failing. "'You must not argue with the man.' Hark you, my fine fellow, we refuse to sanction this marriage. It shall not be performed by our ministers, nor can we dream of admitting your son-in-law as a Yahid. Then admit him on your charity list, said Manasseh. We are more likely to strike you off, and by gad, cried the President, tattooing on the table with his whole fist. If you don't stop this scandal in Stanta, we will send you howling. Is it excommunication you threaten? said Manasseh, rising to his feet. There was a menacing glitter in his eye. This scandal must be stopped, repeated the President, agitatingly rising in involuntary imitation. "'Any member of the Mahamad could stop it in a twinkling,' uh, said Manasseh sullenly. "'You yourself, if you only chose.' 
"'If I only chose!' echoed the President inquiringly. "'If you only chose my daughter, are you not a bachelor? I am convinced she could not say nay to any one present excepting the Chancellor. Only no one is really willing to save the community from this scandal, and so my daughter must marry as best she can.' And yet it is a handsome creature who would not disgrace even a house in Hackney. Manasseh spoke so seriously that the President fumed the more. "'Let her marry this Pole,' he ranted, "'and you shall be cut off from us in life and death. Alive you shall worship without our walls, and dead you shall be buried behind the boards.' "'For the poor man!' excommunication said manasseh in ominous soliloquy for the rich man permission to marry the tedesco of his choice leave the room fellows vociferated the president you have heard our ultimatum but manasseh did not quail and you shall hear mine he said with a quietness that was the more impressive for the president's fury do not forget, Mr. President, that you and I owe allegiance to the same brotherhood. Do not forget that the power which made you can unmake you at the next election. Do not forget that if I have no vote, I have vast influence, that there is not a Yahid whom I do not visit weekly, that there is not a Schnorrer who would not follow me in my exile. Do not forget that there is another community to turn to, yes, the very Ashkenazi community you condemn, with the treasurer of which I talked but just now, a community that waxes daily in wealth and greatness, while you sleep in your sloth. His tall form dominated the chamber. His head seemed to touch the ceiling. The councillors sat dazed as amid a lightning storm. Jackanapes, blasphemer, shameless renegade, cried the President, choking with wrath, and being already on his legs, he dashed the bell and tugged at it madly, blanching the Chancellor's face with the perception of a lost opportunity. I shall not leave this chamber till I choose, said Manasseh, dropping stolidly into the nearest chair and folding his arms. At once a cry of horror and consternation rose from every throat. Every man leapt threateningly to his feet, and Manasseh realized that he was throned in the alcoved armchair. But he neither blenched nor budged. "'Nay, keep your seats, gentlemen,' he said quietly. The President, turning at the stir, caught sight of the Schnorrer, staggered, and clutched at the mantle. The councillors stood spellbound for an instant, while the Chancellor's eyes roved wildly around the walls, as if expecting the gold names to start from their panels. The beadle rushed in, terrified by the strenuous tintinnabulation, looked instinctively toward the throne for orders, then underwent petrifaction on the threshold, and stared speechlessly at Manasseh what time the President, gasping like a landed cod, vainly strove to utter the order 
for the beggar's expulsion. "'Don't stare at me, Gomez,' Manasseh cried imperiously. "'Can't you see the President wants a glass of water?' The beadle darted a glance at the President, and, perceiving his condition, rushed out again to get the water. This was the last straw. To see his authority usurped, as well as his seat, maddened the poor President. For some seconds he strove to mouth an oath, embracing his supine counsellors as well as this beggar on horseback, but he produced only an inarticulate raucous cry, and reeled sideways. Manasseh sprang from his chair, and caught the falling form in his arms. For one terrible moment he stood supporting it in a tense silence, broken only by the incoherent murmurs of the unconscious lips. Then, crying angrily, "'Bestir yourselves, gentlemen! Don't you see the President is ill?' He dragged his burden toward the table, and, aided by the panic-stricken counsellors, laid it flat thereupon, and threw open the ruffled shirt. He swept the minute-book to the floor with an almost malicious movement to make room for the President. The beadle returned with the glass of water, which he well-nigh dropped. "'Run for a physician!' Manasseh commanded, and throwing away the water carelessly in the Chancellor's direction, he asked if any one had any brandy. There was no response. "'Come, come, Mr. Chancellor,' he said. "'Bring out your vial!' And the abashed functionary obeyed. "'Has any of you his equipage without?' Manasseh demanded next of the Mahamad. They had not, so Manasseh dispatched the chief of the elders in quest of a sedan chair. There, then, was nothing left but to await the physician. "'You see, gentlemen, how insecure is earthly power,' said the Schnorrer solemnly while the President breathed stentoriously, deaf to his impressive moralizing. It is swallowed up in an instant, as Lisbon was engulfed. Cursed are they who despise the poor! How is the saying of our sages verified? The house that opens not to the poor opens to the physician. His eyes shone with unearthly radiance in the gathering gloom. The cowed assembly wavered before his words, like reeds before the wind, or conscience-stricken kings before fearless prophets. When the physician came, he pronounced that the President had had a slight stroke of apoplexy, involving a temporary paralysis of the right foot. The patient, by this time restored to consciousness, was conveyed home in the sedan chair, and the Mahamad dissolved in confusion. Manasseh was the last to leave the council chamber. As he stalked into the corridor, he turned the key in the door behind him with a vindictive twist. Then, plunging his hand into his breeches' pocket, he gave the beadle a crown, remarking genially, "'You must have your usual perquisite, I suppose.' The beadle was moved to his depths. He had a burst of irresistible honesty. "'The President gives me only half a crown,' he murmured. "'Yes, but he may not be able to attend the next meeting,' said Manasseh. "'And I may be away, too.'" End of chapter 5